You're listening to The Global N on K103. In the way immigration and war are dealt with, we often have the impression that we are only dealing with data and statistics. But behind all these numbers, there are humans who had a life before, who will have a life after, but especially who have a life during. During the war or at the moment of making the choice to leave. Of course, war is not the only reason that pushes people to flee their country. There are more complex components. And where we often tend to imagine a kind of homogeneous mix when we talk about the immigration of peoples, it is important to change our perspective and see it through the prism of the human, of the individual. That's the topic of the day. Welcome, bienvenue, marhaban, welcome, bienvenido, dege, mermat. My name is Hugo, and today I'm joined with Rita. You're listening to the Global In on K103 Radio, and this show is made in partnership with Utrecht Pretiska Foreningen. Each month, we discuss a topic of foreign affairs, and today with Rita, we went to Vetenska Festival, and sorry for my Swedish, the Festival of Science here in Göteborg. And we met Greg Buchenknapp and Karin Zelano, both researchers, one at uh, the University of Gothenburg and the other at the University of Oslo, where we talk about uh, Greg's book, Message from Ukraine. Yeah, we basically went to uh, find out how war affects everyday life of people in conflict zones, what feelings do they experience and how they cope with violence. So after the February 2020, Two, sorry, uh, full-scale invasion of Ukraine, over 8 million Ukrainians fled to European countries. Uh, but many others have stayed to fight or provide humanitarian help or simply because they could not leave. Uh, in all cases, their lives have changed. And we looked at Messages from Ukraine, a book by our guests Greg Buchenknapp and also Estonian illustrator Jonas Sildre. And they both collected testimonies of young Ukrainians under occupation. And the result is a comic book that is also a scientific work. And since we have Greg with us, um, who studies immigration and integration, and also uh, Karin Zalano, who focuses on the same topics, we will also address some of the issues and questions um, about uh, Europe's role as a host society. So introducing our guests, Greg Buchenknapp is a professor in public administration at the University of Gothenburg. His book, which we are discussing today, was recently presented at Wettenskap Festivalen here in Gothenburg, together with researcher Karin Zalano, who, will also, who was also there with us. She is a Swedish media and journalism researcher at the University of Oslo. Her work focuses, among other topics, in European migration and integration policy. And she is also used to commenting on Swedish migration issues in the Swedish press. Welcome to both. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having us. Greg, how did you get the idea for this book? Since 2018, I've been organizing a training module for young professionals from Eastern Europe as part of the Swedish Institute's Academy for Young Professionals. A large number of the alumni of this project over the past five years come from Ukraine, and we work with them in follow-up projects and have very close relationships with them. 
And when the full-scale war started on February 24th, it was only natural that I would reach out to them and ask them how they were doing. And of course, I wanted to offer help. And as they sent messages back, I realized that I was filling in the gaps. I had words, but I didn't have images. And I began imagining what their moments were looking like. So I contacted a colleague of mine who also works with them, who's a graphic novelist in Estonia. And we sat down, looked at the collective messages and decided we have a way that we can uh, put this war, the horrible events, into uh, more of the public discussion by turning this into a research comic. And what kind of feelings and uh, and situations did you encounter when talking to, to these Ukrainian friends and colleagues? Well, what we see is that there were, uh, you can cluster them under, in terms of experiences, mobility and immobility. And many of them found themselves in situations of voluntary mobility, where they realized that it might be best for them to flee, uh, but they didn't necessarily have to. Others found themselves in situations where they had no choice because there was bombing going on of their neighborhoods. So that was an involuntary mobility. Many of them had then immobility, uh, unable to stay, stuck in bomb shelters in towns that were being surrounded by Russian troops, men between the age of 18 and 60 who did not want to break the law and were therefore required to stay, and individuals who had to stay to take care of parents and pets. And they each process these experiences in different ways. And I would say that the key thing in terms of how they all process these experiences was that none of them were passive. They all demonstrated what we would call in research agency. That is, they stepped forward and they asserted control over their lives in some way and tried to have control over the situation to the best of their abilities. If I may just add something to that, I think that's like one of the really main contribution of this whole project because we have a tendency, all of us, I think, when we think of refugees, people, you know, fleeing or being in these horrible situations that, you know, they are victims and we need to help them. Uh, and that is, of course, true. But what this book really shows is how, what an immense power uh, really lies in, I mean, all of these various strategies. If, it, independently whether you stay or if you cross a border or if you just move within your own country, it's taking action and really taking responsibility for your situation. So that is something you know we can all think think about. I think when we discuss matters of integration as well in our uh, host societies. Yeah, uh, we could uh, see in the book that some uh, uh, some people who fled Ukraine were helping Ukraine from the outside. Uh, so, like you said, this uh, uh, idea of uh, uh, not taking agency away from uh, um, people who are in very uh, difficult situations was uh, uh, quite interesting to see in the book. Yeah, I think that that's a particularly interesting group, that we had several who were based outside of Ukraine at the time, uh, either working or studying outside of Ukraine. And for them to wake up on February 24th was to also try to understand what was going on to people that they knew, cared about, missed very much, uh, but they weren't physically there to help them. 
And uh, some of them tried to deal with this situation by thinking uh, of the option of maybe I'll go back, maybe I'll return, maybe I'll pick up a gun. But many of them uh, immediately plugged themselves into local aid initiatives and began raising supplies, uh, securing money to, uh, to achieve different forms of support, and really thinking about ways that they could avoid being powerless uh, in the face of this horrible event. First, I, I wanted to say like I, I really love to, to read the book. Uh, that was really like uh, even like moving actually to, to read like uh, those testimonies. And the first thing that is really impressive is like just in few pages for each character. In a way, as a reader, you really find uh, yourself projecting into like the different stories. And another thing, like as we talked before, um, that surprised me is like the number of persons saying that they want to stay in Ukraine. Like I, I note like one of the sentences that really stood out for me uh, is the story of uh, Sasha with her mom, her grandma and her two dogs saying like, I am too angry to leave my place just because somebody has imperial ambitions. And that's really like, yeah, as you said, like they are, of course, yeah, they are victim, but they're also like, yeah, main actor of, of their country, basically. And how did you react when you saw like all those people who wanted to stay in Ukraine, either to fight or to help their uh, fellows? Well, of course, I respect their choices, first and foremost, because they're the ones who are on site. They're the ones that have the best appreciation of what they think they are capable of and how they think they can contribute. And I agree with you that, that those of them that identified not wanting to leave because of the way in which it might feed into a certain narrative of being seen as weak. Uh, Sasha saying that she didn't want to uh, sort of satisfy the imperial ambitions of Russia. Or uh, Solomia, who decided to flee to the western part of Ukraine, but to not cross the border into Slovakia, to stay in the westernmost city to indicate she would not leave the country. These were people who were thinking on the one hand about practical considerations and safety, but they were also thinking bigger picture about the symbolic implications of the actions that they would take. And do, do you still have some, some news from all those people? Yes, uh, I have close working relationships with them still on other projects. I've met several of them at uh, events over the uh, over the past year, and we are working on a follow-up book, uh, which will take a look at the experiences one year later on the one-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion. And what uh, the participants are doing for that is they're each writing a short diary account of the one-year anniversary, And they're also giving us some retrospective memories of some key moments for them over the past year. And I'm starting to read these as they as they come in now. And, and the diaries are fascinating because as, as they begin to understand and see the potential of comics to try to communicate emotions, they really adapt to this process as well. And we now have people who, uh, as opposed to putting themselves at the center of the story, are using the opportunity to write about the one-year anniversary from the perspective of their pets. How did their pets feel on that one-year anniversary? And that's a really interesting way also, I think, to process trauma. Uh, to say that perhaps for me, I don't want to put the focus on myself, but I can also see that through comics and through this uh, potentially more lighthearted way of looking at it, I can really manage to say something serious that otherwise might be too difficult for people to approach. Yeah, because that's really something like I, that's the first time I'm, I'm reading, to be honest, a comic from like a researcher, like I never heard about like or never read something like that before. And so, of course, like first you're a bit surprised, like when you, when you, 
when Rita told me about the, the comic idea, I was like, oh, that's that's really interesting. And then once you start to read, like, yeah, I, I mean, I would say also like for a lot of people, it's easier to read a comic uh, than a research uh, book. And I'm working on my thesis right now. So yeah, sometimes reading research uh, text is, is more like complicated, but like you really like, yeah, jump into like all this stuff, all the different story without like knowing really who are those people what they will do after what what they were before but just like the time that you have the message you you yeah you live with them in a way just like two and four page and then you move to another and yeah that's really like emotional in a way also like to see th this point and yeah i really recommend like people to to read this book thank you so much for that uh i think that what you've said there really ties into the way in which this comic fits into a broader methodological approach which is called arts-based methods. And arts-based methods, one of the things that they, that's emphasized by researchers who work in this field is the importance of emotional knowledge. Uh, we have mainstream research, quantitative and qualitative, which tries to emphasize factual knowledge. And people who work in this more arts-based tradition really suggest that one of the things that we take away from these types of encounters with be it comics or be it creative writing or be it dance or what have you, is that it allows us to become somehow closer to the individuals who have experienced the events and almost understand the emotions of what they went through. And that's a really valuable form of understanding as well. And none of this would have been possible without a fantastic co-author who deserves a great deal of mention, and that's Yunus Sildre. He's president of the Estonian Comics Society. Uh, he's done one major graphic novel that's been translated into about six or seven languages right now, uh, and he's working on a follow-up. And we were very fortunate that he decided to work with us and to both educate me in terms of thinking like a comics artist and to help translate their text messages into these images. Well, I think what you mentioned is really the, what, what really makes this book, uh, it should be read by as many people as possible because I think it yes, really, definitely. it moves and it's always important to question and to update and to sort of, uh, dissect stereotypes but I think it's perhaps even more important in matters related to migration integration society as a whole how we want to live together who is you know the other person etc etc and that really this book really does this it really conveys this full image of what it is like being invaded and it's not one answer, uh, it, it, but it really makes, like puts a human face, if you want to, um, on this uh, horrible situation. Um, and, and that's a huge contribution in itself. But I also think, uh, Greg, I mean, I'm curious, now I'm posing a question. Uh, how, I mean, because you managed to send the book to the participants, most of them. And what were their reactions? Because I've seen uh, that you have managed to sort of put a copy of the book in their hands. Well, they knew about the book as we were working on it, of course, because one part of the research process, of course, with, with any individuals who are respondents, but particularly people who are in vulnerable situations, is to get informed consent. So they saw the preliminary drawings as we were working on those, and we had to ensure that they were agreeing to take part in it from there. Had they said no, of course, they would have just had the copies of the preliminary drawings to keep for themselves, and that would have been fine. They all were very enthusiastic in terms of, of yes. Um, 
they have all received copies of the book now and what many of them have done which which i think is an absolutely wonderful initiative is they've taken their respective pages or the cover of the book and they've done social media posts uh highlighting how they are living now in one case the woman who was living outside of uh ukraine living in estonia but her family has a cafe in kiev went home to Kiev and took a picture of herself outside that cafe where there's sandbags to show that life goes on even in the face of war. Uh, another who had experienced a great deal of time in a bomb shelter decided to take a picture of herself with the book during a blackout with just a battery-powered light. Um, and then another who fled uh, Ukraine with her gerbil uh, sent us a picture of herself and the book along with the gerbil from Poland. So they've, they've really, I think, they understand, of course, the power of social media quite well, and they're all very committed to the idea of using this book to keep attention on the war. And since all proceeds from the book do go to raise funds for humanitarian aid through the Canada-Ukraine Foundation, uh, they see the importance of the initiative as well. Yeah, and there is also like this, in a way, like power of image, basically, that like it's not, it's really different as I would say we are used to um, the way we have news uh, from like a country in war. It's um, almost time like a video or picture, but to have that through a comic books with like real real still real character and still real life i don't know maybe just for me but it really changed also the way uh maybe because i'm sadly i'm more used to have like a documentary and 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 journalists who are taking picture but to have that through a comic book if it's like yeah the, the f because comic books for me is more like a pleasure and something you like to as like really like a hobby or, or to, when you want to chill out and when you have like this mix here between like the real life and the comic books it, it brings something else actually for 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 readers i think it's important to point out that we're we're really not at the cutting edge of this tradition that we're following in a long line of people who've been doing this work both as journalists and as researchers And uh, there's some great crossover books uh, that deal with migration, and one of them's Welcome to the New World by Jake Halpern, a New York Times journalist who uh, worked very closely with a family of refugees who came from Syria to the United States and uses comics to document their experiences of trying to integrate into the U.S., Uh, and then Joe Sacco, the, uh, the, the comics journalist uh, who's done work on, on crisis and conflict settings around the world. But this also exists in a more pure scholarly form. Uh, and we were very fortunate to be published in the University of Toronto press series Ethnographic with an emphasis on the graphic. And we're, I think, the fifth or sixth book in the series. And we come after people who have done books dealing with uh with disease and revolution uh with questions of uh the right to purchase sexual services and sex trafficking in uh, south america uh rural to urban migration in thailand and soon to be a book about finance and climate change And so there's really just this, this group of researchers who are beginning to cluster around this idea of using images to tell their stories, uh, not simply to say, I've written a research paper, now I'm going to make it uh, a comic, but to say the comic is the research paper. That's, that's, where we're going, that's where we're going to do this. We're not going to adapt this. We're going to make this part of the process. So I just wanted to go back to what you, you just uh, put on the table. 
um, about uh, the the researching part, so about the method part, which is uh, was really interesting to me. I didn't know anything about this tradition that you just uh, um, explained to us. Um, and I was wondering, as a researcher, what kind of questions and what kind of things were you asking of your subjects, so to say, of your participants? Well, this book was a bit different than uh, two of the other comics projects that we have ongoing. In in this one, what we uh, the idea emerged as a result of seeing the initial text, uh, and so we didn't pose follow up questions to them. Uh, we simply took the messages that they sent us, did them in uh, visual form uh, as a draft, and then discussed them, discussed these with them, and whether they would be willing to contribute those to a book. Um, but during that process of discussing these preliminary drafts, many of them had suggestions, which I love because I like the idea of working really closely with respondents. I think I, I, I like to sort of break down that barrier. And, and I think we see that uh, happen in two ways in the book. One is a change that wasn't made and one is a change that is made. The change that wasn't made uh, is in the case of Anastasia, uh, who's in Vienna. And uh, she had talked about going home to fight uh, because she was inspired by her father. Um, she chose not to. And when she saw the preliminary drawings, she contacted me and said, well, should we change these? Because I didn't go home and fight. And so we had this really nice discussion about how her drawings represented her state of mind at the moment. Uh, and she said, great, let's keep it that way because that honors who I was and what I was thinking then. Then where we did make an addition as opposed to a change is, of course, at the end of the book. There's 15 people in the book. Each of them get two pages with the ex exception of Victoria. And Victoria was in Mariupol under siege. Um, we had gotten a preliminary message from her and then nothing for three weeks. And when she finally sent us a message saying that she had escaped, uh, we were incredibly relieved, sent her the draft pages right away. And she said, oh, I love them, but I've got some ideas. And, you know, that's that's my type of research when somebody says I've got some ideas. And her idea was to take the focus off of her and to put it onto a young girl of about uh, six or seven years old uh, who she had been with out in a, uh, a yard one day outside of an apartment building while the bombs were falling and talking with uh, in the distance and telling her uh, that she needed to cover her ears. The little girl wanted Victoria to cover her ears. And Victoria couldn't understand why. But she was doing it because she wanted to yell at the Russian bomber planes. Uh, and you know, Victoria's point was, this book needs to ultimately show the voices of children as well. It's not just about those of us who know you and are part of this group. It's giving voice to many other Ukrainians as well. And, and that was a beautiful way to, to add an additional perspective to the book and to include them in the making of it. Can you say something about um, the book that you are working on right now and whether there has been or you have uh, spotted a, a shift in the initial feelings that you report that you um, registered in this book? Has that changed? Are you registering different things now? 
Yeah, I, I think that one of the key differences between the first book and this one is that the messages we received as part of the first book were so raw and unprocessed that people were literally texting as they were sitting on subways trying to flee or they were sitting in bomb shelters as the bombs were falling. And now they have this, uh, this one-year distance from the original set of events. They also have taken part in the book and they can sit and think about how do they understand Ukraine's situation right now, their own work in relation to what's going on in Ukraine, and how do they see the idea of a comics research process as being able to further keep Ukraine in public consciousness? And so some of them have chosen, as said, to use these, uh, to use the opportunity to talk about the one year anniversary to put other people in the spotlight or other creatures such as their pets. In some other cases, they've opted to, uh, to not tell us stories of commemoration, but to give us stories of everyday life, uh, going and getting their hair done, going to a photo shoot, having dinner with family and friends. And I think that what we see in all of these different ways that they choose to represent their experiences on that day is they want to show that, that life goes on that they are choosing to live their lives in different ways. And while they're affected by the war, it does not define every aspect of who they are. And where can we find the book? Uh, the book is available if you are here in Sweden. Uh, the book is available uh, through the website of any of the major online Swedish booksellers. For international audiences, you can of course find it at the uh, you can find it at the online bookseller mega bookseller of your choice. There are also free PDFs available through University of Toronto Press, uh, and that's very important. I'd say uh, particularly from a teaching perspective, I don't like to make students buy the books that I write when I teach. Uh, I think it's much better if uh, they can just have the book for free. And this is a way to ensure that they can have access to the book and that we can use it in a classroom setting. And I hope other instructors will think the same way. And we will make sure to leave a link to um, the book in our show notes on uh, Spotify for sure. And as you said, life goes on for everyone. Um, and it does also for those who flee the country. Um, and we know that um, um, in situations like the Ukrainian situation, but many others, getting to the destination is often not the end of the journey for people who flee. There are many barriers that migrants and refugees have to face in host societies. Migration has peaked in Europe in 2015, with more than 2.5 million, million non-EU citizens coming to EU countries, um, most of them from the Middle East to escape war and persecution. And at the same time, so-called economic migrants continue to come as well, hoping to build a better life. Um, the invasion of Ukraine once again has tested Europe's ability and willingness to receive refugees. In a recent article that uh, Karin has co-authored, she said that migration policy, as she sees it, needs to focus on the conditions of inclusion in the host society. So I would like to ask you, Karin, how effective is integration in European countries today? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I can answer it, though, at least not, you know, with a... I cannot answer it briefly. Uh, but I think, uh, I mean, what, what you bring up is so extremely important that the war in Ukraine... If you, 
I will start on a positive note that the war in Ukraine was fortunately, I say this within a quotation mark, that the war in Ukraine is so close to us. So I think in a way it really reminded us, um, you know, how we should uh, act, you know, how we can act if we just remember that refugees are individuals, people with, you know, everyday lives, just like you and me. Um, and that was, to most Europeans, very obvious in the Ukrainian case. But as you move further away geographically and culturally, if you so uh, want to say it, um, that seems to become harder and harder, right? Um, so I think, um, I hope that what we can learn from the Ukrainian uh, case, at least, you know, the immediate reaction from for Europeans and in, in Sweden was that, you know, we need to help out, we need to open our borders, we need to let them into our society. That should be like, you know, our uh, um, ideal or really our roadmap to how we, you know, that immediate human reaction. Um, but that's not always the case, of course, as we know. Uh, and I think an important question when you talk about uh, integration uh, is to ask yourself what kind of society do we want, right? Like, not it's not about, you know, ticking boxes, what refugees need to be or need to do or need to say. It's about what kind of society do we want and how can we make sure that everyone um, takes part in that society. So that was not, uh, of course, an answer to your question, but I think what we see is that um, more and more countries in Europe, they are uh, maybe not asking that question, uh, and at least they're not answering it in an inclusive way. You know, as a society, uh, what you immediately start to do, and you know, you pick up your toolbox of policies and different measures that you can um, start or initiate. Um, we have seen that um, although the EU uh, actually had a unified response to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, all of the, the various European countries have actually within that answer, they have responded very differently. So just to take a, an example close to uh, us in every sense is uh, that Sweden and Denmark and Norway have given Ukrainian refugees very different um, opportunities to live in their respective countries. So um, um, in that, in terms of housing, in terms of language education, in terms of um, work permits, for example, and schooling for children, and that varies all across Europe. Um, and of course has different consequences for you know what we will see in the future. And it even varies within countries. Uh, if you take Sweden as an example, uh, of course, children who come from Ukraine as part of the Temporary Protection Directive get full access to all publicly funded Swedish healthcare services. However, adults over the age of 18 in Sweden um, are in most regions only entitled to health care that cannot be deferred, which is somewhat more than emergency health care, but not everyday health care. 
and it's only really in a few uh, regions, such as up north in Vesterbotten, that they've decided to give Ukrainians access to uh, health care uh, the same as uh, anybody else who would be in Sweden with a residence permit. And, and that has real implications because this puts doctors and nurses in a very tough situation where they have to make a judgment call every day when a Ukrainian comes to see them. Is this health care something that cannot be deferred or not? Uh, and they, of course, are calling for this to be completely gotten rid of and to give Ukrainians uh, the full slate of health care because they don't like being put in this difficult ethical situation. Yes, talking about this uh, image of society that you, you said before, like th there is this uh, uh, far-right conspiracy theory who is uh, going bigger and bigger, like called like the replacement theory, or uh, in from France, uh, le grand remplacement, and it's adopted by um, many far-right parties now in Europe. And before it was just like no one really uh, think about that, and now it's really something big uh, in in France with like the the Front National, or even with the party of Eric Zemmour. We see that also in Italy, even in Sweden with like the the Swedish Democrats. Uh, and it say like yeah, immigrants are, are are moving to country just in the purpose to 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 change actually the the, the population to to change the country as like white population will become a minority. And now uh, as like researcher, how can you explain this rise of of this theory? And also, like, I would say my biggest question, like, what was the best way to counter, like, this theory? Like, say, no, it's not true. I, I think that the, the argument, first, if we take the argument in terms of France, um, I think what's really interesting is, is to go back in time uh, and to take a look at, uh, at France uh, after Algeria, uh, sort of the rise of labor migration uh, there. And one of the things we saw was this, uh, this hesitance, this antipathy, antipathy to the idea of uh, labor migrants coming from these, from these former colonies. And there were concerns there as well. I, I think there's been a lot of good French scholarship over the years that, that demonstrated to us that there was never this idea of a fixed ethnic France that was suddenly going to become something else. France has always been a country that's been, uh, that's been changing demographically, just like any other country. So underlying a lot of this replacement myth and this replacement argument is the idea, number one, that there's a fixed dominant ethnic component Uh, at all points in time or has been up until now, and it's suddenly threatened by an influx of outsiders, when in reality the compositions of societies change all the time. The, the second problem with the argument is it assumes almost uh, in, in standard conspiracy thinking ways uh, that, there's a, that there's this uh, collective understanding on the part of migrants that they've all banded together to come to a society to change its ethnic composition. And the simple truth is that migrants come for a variety of reasons. Some of them don't choose to come to the country that they're placed in as, uh, as uh, refugees. Uh, others do choose that country as refugees. Others come as students. Uh, others come as short-term labor migrants. Others come as long-term labor migrants. Others come as partners and families. Uh, others are uh, temporarily stationed there for whatever reason or circular migration. And, you know, it isn't as if there's this convention of migrants out there sitting down and saying, hey, here's country X. Let's all move there and replace the culture. Uh, you know, that, that type of nefarious way of thinking uh, simply isn't the case. People have many motives for moving. 
Uh, and some of those have to do with economic conditions, some have to do with educational opportunities, and some have to do with safety. But the idea of cultural replacement, uh, you know, there's just not anything that supports this notion that that's why people would choose to move. And, and I think to just emphasize both of your points, but to start with the first, that a first step is to just question the premise of the very question. Because as you said, it it assumes that there is some kind of nation or you know static thing that is Sweden, um, which is you know just ask any historian or just uh, read a newspaper article from fifty years ago. It will be very evident to you that that society is different from you know uh, society today. Um, and I also I just heard a very similar argument by Professor Massey from Princeton, who said he he got a question from the audience at a seminar. Someone asked him, you know, what's the biggest misunderstanding about migration? And he immediately answered, it's that, you know, the biggest misunderstanding is that every migrant is dying to come to just your country. Like that's the biggest myth of them all. And and again and again and again, I think this shows. I mean, yes, some people deliberately choose France or choose Sweden or whatever, but I also met people who ended up in Norway because you know they, their flight to Canada was canceled. They wanted to go to Canada, but they had to you know land in Norway on the way and you know they lived there for 50 years now. So um, yeah, that's uh, the second point. Um, something that I, I've noticed, uh, and I think it's quite relevant to what you've both just said, um, is that in, uh, in Portugal, where I'm from, um, Portugal has worked as an entry to Europe, and uh, statistics show that most migrants do not stay because they do not want to stay in Portugal. It was just a way to get into Europe. Um, and so it really shows that, no, they, I mean... Um, we are not that interesting to them. We don't provide that many opportunities. And uh, that's just, yeah, I think it's funny in that way. And, and I also think uh, two things. Um, I mean, often when um, you read or listen to arguments that are anti-immigration, or it is like uh, they are um, discussing um, migration as something that you can, you know, opt out of. That we don't want, you know, mobility, for example. But it's it's not possible. It's it's not a real alternative. It's uh, a utopia in their, you know, uh, view that is not it's not possible. So that that very alternative is uh, is not a, a real option. So that's also very important, I think, to to keep in mind. I think the uh, the current situation in Portugal is actually really fascinating when it comes to migration, because uh, one of the, the key debates and sort of key pieces of pressure right now has to do with uh, the use of certain visas that allow people who are relatively high income and rather privileged uh, to come and to settle in Portugal uh, and to begin their life in the European Union there. Uh, and as a result, they push up housing prices. Uh, and and you know that's that's something that I I think is uh, is worth debating as well because here are states trying to actively encourage investments the inflight of individuals who they believe will benefit the tax base but one of the consequences of that is for a country that already has rather low wages uh, which Portugal unfortunately does uh, the moment you begin pushing the rental prices through the roof 
uh, for people who come on this as a result of this visa program, um, that has real consequences. And there, you know, discussions about that are interesting. Ultimately, I'm an advocate of the idea that people should be allowed to settle uh, in places like Portugal and to make contributions. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't consider the consequences of that and to try to work with those to ensure that you still have access to affordable housing for people who are being marginalized. That's absolutely critical as well. Or else, once again, you create and foster an anti-immigrant sentiment, although this one very, very different. And also a note to back to the conspiracy theory question is that it, you know, you can't avoid also mentioning that it speaks to the ugly side of us, you know, uh, that um, um, re replacement uh, theory, for example, it, it really, you know, um, tickles the ugly side of humanity or humankind that, you know, we want to... Uh, b categorize people in us and them. We want an, a very clear enemy. Um, and, and I mean, telling people that they are, if they just push through on in this matter, uh, that they are, you know, revealing a conspiracy, it makes people feel smart. And I think, unfortunately, uh, most of, most people and politicians in favor of immigration and mobility and inclusive societies, call it what you want, they make people, on the other hand, feel kind of stupid. That They speak to uh, citizens and audiences in a way that makes them feel underestimated. So, so that's also something, I mean, we rhetorically and like uh, pedagogically, uh, the conspiracy theorists, they are really skilled. But uh, sometimes I think that Uh, the counter-arguments are not presented in an as convincing way. Yeah, I, I totally understand because it's also like, uh, it's populism. So basically to say like, we have a crisis right now in our country. This is the problem. It's immigration. That's, that's really, a, that's easy to, to get actually, uh, to, to, to get, yeah, okay, the problem is due to immigration. So uh, until we don't face that problem, we will still have more and more problem. And that's really something uh I would say really scary now in all Europe starting to think like that and just to, I mean, we. I think I'm lucky to live in European Union because I'm free to, to travel here to, to come and things like that. And now we're in a way that we want to close our border and come back to our safe, basically. And I, I think that's one of the ways in which the arts can play a very meaningful role, uh, encountering simplistic messages in ways that are still accessible. Uh, obviously, both Cotton and I spend a lot of our time writing the journal articles that are full of big theories and words and are read by about 12 people. I think more people read Cardin's than mine, right? Yeah. Um, but obviously, that's not going to win those debates out in society. And that's where working together with different types of artist practitioners who have a good understanding of how to tap into that sort of emotional core of a public and how to reframe material and reframe data in such a way that it allows people to think just a bit one moment longer, to think a bit deeper about it and to begin to question things. That's one of the absolute critical things that I think we need to be seeing as a part of public scholarship initiatives across the board. Um, and talking about the uh, unavoidability, basically, of uh, mobility, as you said, Karin, uh, I wanted to bring to the table the um, agreement that the current Swedish government has made 
um, before coming to power. So we have uh, now a right-wing coalition uh, in power in Sweden, uh, led by the moderates and with the participation of the liberals and the Christian Democrats. Um, and the support of the Sweden, Sweden, the Sweden Democrats, uh, who are not in government but support it. Um, so before coming to government, they have made an agreement in a place called Tido, and so the agreement became called the Tido Agreement. Um, you are critical of this agreement when it comes to integration. Um, what does it do wrong, and what should Sweden be doing instead? I mean this. This agreement is very explicit. Um, I don't know if it's available in English, but uh, for those of uh, the listeners who read Swedish, uh, I think you definitely should, it's online, should read it because it says it's very explicit in that it wants to make life very difficult for migrants or asylum seekers specifically in Sweden. Uh, and uh, it suggests various measures um it it uh, will be you know the the agreement states that it should be or that it wants to uh, impose policies that makes it more difficult to move around more difficult to work uh more difficult to basically live um if you if you come to sweden um and on top of that it also imposes um several restrictions on people who are not swedish citizens so it says, it basically sets out a number of measures targeting foreign-born, especially uh, asylum seekers uh, in Sweden or uh, people who get uh, residence permits based on, on uh, um, their uh, refugee status. Um, and um, without going into like the nitty-gritty details of the agreement, it's very, as I said, it's very explicit. It's one of the longest parts of the agreement. Um, it's very clear that it is not about integration. It's about deteriorate, how do you, not, not de deterring uh, people from even, it's a lot of signaling going on here that he wants to really set um, state out, state very firmly that Sweden, you know, does not like people um, migrating to Sweden. Um, and it's a, it's a basically, you know, Sweden Democrats said it themselves. They have written this part. It's, uh, you know, more, it's going even beyond what they could uh, dream of. Um, so um, I think it's uh, really, it shouldn't be even called uh, integration measures. It's something else. Will this deter people, actually? Because I'm, I'm thinking there are so many countries who have so many difficult rules and people do still go because they have to go somewhere. I think the most important and the strongest signaling is taking place within Sweden. This is a way for the Sweden Democrats to really convey to voters that they don't like. They don't like uh, Muslim people, they don't like, it's a lot of, I, I'm not sure what they do like, but uh, um, it's not, uh, yeah, it's more about domestic politics and gaining support domestically. Yeah, and I think in terms of the domestic politics argument, what's interesting to look at here are the silences. We see what's being said in the agreement and particularly by this portion that is authored by the Sweden Democrats. But then if we look at the parties out of power, and in particular if we look at the Social Democrats, the Social Democrats when it comes to migration 
are significant right now for their resounding silence for not criticizing this agreement. Even even more, I think most uh, parties have uh, sort of met this Tide agreement with uh, even sort of, um, I mean, if they have commented it, but they have said that, you know, uh, this is just a logical consequence of, you know, uh, a change, a policy change that it was initiated already 2015, which is astonishing uh, to an observer on the outside, um, because it's obviously, you know, going a lot further. Um, it's interesting because sometimes it feels like it's almost um, just catering to public opinion in a way. Um, I, I, I feel this in many situations, like uh, when uh, it, when in Portugal, for example, the the um, aversion to Roma people is so 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 big and so deep in society, and it goes into in. in in the full political spectrum, and it's really hard to find a person who does not have some kind of prejudice and does not hate Roma people. Um, even progressive people will say some things. It's so big that even left-wing parties will have trouble speaking out for Roma people or calling out right-wing politicians who say atrocious things about Roma people. Now, I'm not saying this is uh, all left-wing politicians who do not speak out. Uh, that, that's unfair to say, but it's something that they they do resort to silence a lot because that really hurts their image to be associated with that. I, I, I think you're making the very strong argument that there's a shift in this, this center point of the consensus when it comes to migration and this shift in the center point uh, in the consensus regarding migration in Europe has been moving steadily rightwards now for for quite some time. Uh, and so on some level, we, we shouldn't be shocked when we see mainstream and even center left parties uh, being either silent or coming out and saying in rather quick but lukewarm terms that they accept restrictive agreements. Um, because they're 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 merely reflecting where the balance where the balance of parties are. Um, it's interesting to see. I still think in the long run of whether the uh, parties are following voters or whether voters are following parties here. Um, I I would think that as a societal experiment, there is still room for political parties to make the argument that we need to think in radically different terms. Uh, we need to understand, of course, that uh, migration has costs for society just like any policy, uh, but those costs can be managed, they can be addressed. And for a party to step into that gap there and suggest that um, perhaps we've gone too far or we definitely have gone too far and we need to rethink this and we need to come back to what is the core of our humanitarian identity and to see whether there's a way to challenge this almost uh, dominant argument. You're right, Greg. And I think that's why your book and the whole uh, uh, Russian war in Ukraine is so interesting and it really broke out if I may say so, you know, at the exact right point in time in the sense that, you know, while this uh, discussion on migration was moving uh, towards more and more restrictiveness and xenophobia, and all of a sudden we had a war in Europe 
and it was people we knew and we had a lot of people living in Sweden with relatives and family members being invaded. And I think it was a huge alarm clock to many people to see that this could happen, what it meant, uh, that it was not something happening far away. You know, we, so, so in a way, I hope that that experience and also what's shown in your book really revitalizes the discussion and may sort of allow for new perspectives. We haven't seen that yet, but it's, it might make it easier to shift the discussion a little bit. Also on the TD agreement, it's obvious that uh, it's not aimed at, you know, facilitating living together. You know, there are all of these uh, uh, suggestions about, for example, allowing uh, uh, the police to uh, search people within certain areas without a suspicion of crime, for example, which, you know, uh, criminologists um, have, um, you know, said will most likely lead to less trust in those um, in those communities, in those neighborhoods. And I mean, integration, even if you don't like the term or living together or uh, we're all, everyone agrees that, you know, in order for society to work and especially a welfare state like Sweden, we need to trust each other. We need to trust the state. And, you know, all of these measures, there are several examples in the TIDO agreement that clearly goes against uh, growing trust in society. And that's why it's really hypocrite. And, and really, so, so I, I said before, it shouldn't be called, <laughs> uh, you know, um, suggestions or integration policies, because they're not. They're doing the exact opposite. Thank you, Greg Buchanan and um, Karin Zelano for being our guest today. It was a real pleasure to discuss with you. Uh, Greg, your book is available now, right? We can already have it in... That's correct. Yeah, the book is available, uh, can oh. be ordered online pretty much anywhere in the world. And in the all in good Russia. libraries. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Thank you. You're listening to The Global End on K103. Well, it's always good to have musical accompaniment. So. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> But I think... Uh...